Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The International Energy Agency forecasts that electric vehicles could account for a third of the global new car market by the end of this decade. While the prospect of a growing fleet of EVs is good news for the climate, the emergence of electric vehicles raises its own set of sustainability challenges. One area of notable concern surrounds the raw materials that are used in EV batteries, which are frequently sourced from regions of the world where environmental and social governance tend to be weak. This reality runs counter to the sustainable promise of the clean energy transition, EVs included, and has raised concern among clean technology companies, EV manufacturers, and ESG-minded investors. Today's podcast explores the environmental and human realities surrounding the production of one such material, cobalt, which is an essential element in the lithium-ion batteries used in everything from smartphones to electric vehicles. The majority of cobalt is produced in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, an impoverished and environmentally sensitive country that has attracted attention as demand for cobalt has grown. Today's podcast takes a look at ESG concerns around cobalt production and is the third episode in our series that looks at governance questions surrounding the transition to clean energy. My guests are David Manley and Hervé Ladeau from the Natural Resource Governance Institute, which is a global organization that works to improve the environmental and social performance of mining industries. David and Hervé will discuss efforts to improve oversight of raw material value chains, in particular for cobalt. They'll also look at what's potentially at stake for the clean energy transition and economies dependent on raw materials production should ESG concerns not be adequately addressed. David and Hervé, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Andy. So I wonder if you could get us started on our conversation about natural resource governance by telling us about the work of the organization that you both work for, which is the Natural Resource Governance Institute. What are the organization's aims and where does it work? Hervé, I thought we could start with you. Yes, thanks, Andy. Uh, NRGI is uh, an internationally independent, non-profit organization. Uh, we provide policy advice, advocacy on uh, natural resource governance from evidence-based research and lessons uh, learned from the field. Uh, we basically draw on our resource governance index, RGI, and our natural resource chapter, and we share our analysis with uh, and expertise freely uh, at the global level to shape global norms and uh, with national policymakers and accountability actors like civil society groups uh, in about 20 oil and mineral produ producing countries in almost all continents. Uh, we provide trainings, technical assistance, support on how to deliver transparency and accountability, including through the implementation of uh, uh, extractive industry transparency initiative, EITI, the use of data, strengthening fiscal systems, reforming state-owned enterprises, improving the management of resource revenues in this energy transition context. 
So, David, I wonder if you could help us uh, set the stage for the discussion today and talk about the magnitude of demand and how that is changing for minerals that are key to the energy transition and particularly to electric vehicles. How quickly is the demand for a variety of minerals, cobalt, lithium, et cetera, growing as we're seeing the, the EV market itself expand? It's it's going to be pretty large. Like all these technologies, EVs, wind farms, solar, they're all going to be low carbon, but they're really, they're really high metal. So an EV over the course of its life will be much less carbon intensive than, than a normal internal combustion engine car, right? A, a diesel, a petrol, gasoline car. But it needs about six times as much batch, uh, uh, as six times as much metals. Uh, a lot of cobalt, a lot of copper, lithium, manganese, these things. Um, and we need, we kind of need to replace the whole of the world's fleet of cars with EVs to be hitting the, the Paris uh, Agreement for climate change. Um, and we need this done pretty quickly. Um, in, in Europe, we've got bans on petrol and diesel cars coming up in the 2030s. The UK is banning the new sales of uh, petrol and diesel cars in 2030, the rest of the EU in 2035. Um, and so this will see a really rapid expansion or, or need for a rapid expansion in EVs and the batteries and therefore in the demand for stuff like cobalt. Hervé, let's, let's jump back to you. I wonder if you could introduce us to what some of the major governance concerns are around the mining of these materials. What are the key countries beyond DRC where these uh, minerals are mined? And what are some of the, the kind of the human rights and environmental concerns that we're looking at here? There are many countries in Africa, that, um, especially in Africa, that are um, uh, home to uh, those minerals that will play that are already play, playing a, a role in energy transition. We are talking about cobalt, but there, there's also nickel and, and, and to some extent copper and bauxite. Uh, so on cobalt, especially and the production of, of batteries, uh, the whole, so the DRC and the whole Southern Africa is a space where uh, things are moving really fastly. Uh, since uh, last year uh, to uh, develop cooperation uh, that will help uh, harness the potential in Zambia, in Madagascar, in South Africa, uh, and so that value chains can be created there uh, to uh, enhance the production and add value so that uh, uh, production can be extended and expanded um, uh, in, in this territory. Regarding the DRC and those countries as well, on ESG, Environment Social Governance, overall governance, uh, we published in 2021 uh, our Resource Governance Index that measures governance with a focus on transparency and accountability. And uh, on 13 mining countries, uh, assessed with the resource governance index, seven of them had a governance, uh, a poor or weak level of governance. And the DRC governance was the worst of those uh, countries. Um, in fact, if when you go in details, we, you observe that with the 70% of world cobalt production and 10% of world tropical forest, that I will recall that covers about 60% of the national territory in the DRC. 
mining exploitation is already competing with forest preservation. Uh, but with the expected expansion of cobalt demand in coming years, uh, the areas of production might expand and then raise risk of increased deforestation. Another aspect of um, uh, ESG uh, or governance concern is that DRC production is mainly processed in China, like from other countries, because China processes a lot of uh, cobalt, more than half in, in the world meaning a long supply chain with sharp increase in CO2 emissions if cobalt is not well processed in the DRC. And um, I would also mention uh, that cobalt production is associated with uh, human rights abuses as part of, part of that is produced by artisanal miners who work in, as many know, in precarious and dangerous conditions and uh, involve child work. Um, to, on corruption, especially as this is part of governance, uh, cobalt is associated with corruption as well because of lack of transparency and accountability, in, especially in uh, licensing processes, contract renegotiation, beneficial ownership to know who owns the titles, the licenses, and who benefit ultimately tax collection and uh, utilization, subnational revenues collection and utilization, environmental and social commitment and payments, resource-backed loans, like in the SICOMIN deals, you know, that deal that started in 2018 in the DRC uh, involving Jicamin, uh, the state-owned enterprise, and uh, Chinese partners, and which has been a, an opaque deal with undisclosed a contract and uh, with complex financial structuring with unmet commitment on infrastructures, unmet commitment on uh, the cobalt production and mining production in general. So there are many areas where in those countries uh, we need an improvement, a substantial improvement of governance so that um, uh, the price of cobalt, for example, is, is more uh, rewarding to artisanal miners, for example, because you know the cobalt price is not a set international market. And in that, in the context, to, to be short, in context of opacity, ruling elites and their partners, including companies, can capture institutions and prevent citizens from uh, benefiting their resources. So, Hervé, you mentioned the artisanal mining in yeah. uh, the DRC. I wonder if you could tell us what that is. And you've been on the ground there. Tell us a little bit more about the context of how cobalt is mined. Artisanal mining is part of this. There are also quite a few large industrial companies, I think many Chinese owned, that do the mining there. Tell us what you see on the ground. Uh, th there are many uh, options, people. Uh, we go from individual uh, mining to cooperatives and uh, a sort of uh, nascent companies, uh, but still in the artisanal uh, uh, operations that operate there on uh, cobalt mining. And the attempts in recent years have been to organize that sector uh, into cooperatives, into more organized and uh, easy to monitor uh, um, uh, organizations so that they can be formalized somehow. Uh, you, you know, the artisanal production there in the DRC uh, represents about 20% of the national production. 
so it is a significant sector involving about 200,000 people. Wait, so 200,000 people, 200,000 people are in these informal, artisanal, or small-scale mines? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is really the issue, how to move those people from uh, informal activities to activities that can uh, benefit from um, support from the government, from civil society groups, from donors. And so the issue is identifying those uh, miners and supporting them uh, so that they can regroup. Uh, And sometimes people mine behind your houses. You, you know, even digging holes within your homes uh, or illegally mining in areas already allocated to mining companies. So it is a complex uh, situation there. Uh, artisanal miners not only receive very little from their efforts, but also uh, they also face various physical threats. Uh, they are usually blasted in tunnels there because of... Um, pollution, uh, gas accumulation in tunnels because of flood as well. There are collapses uh, uh, under the ground, causing deaths um, very frequently. This is one of, in fact, the dirtiest aspect of the cobalt story. And this is uh, likely to threaten the criticality of cobalt in the future. And this is where we, we believe that uh, this can, uh, the situation can divert investors away from cobalt because uh, uh, it is hard to defend uh, the association uh, to uh, this dirty aspect of of money. The DRC government uh, has attempted uh, to organize the sector, creating in 2020 the EGC, the state-owned enterprise, as a uh, entreprise générale de cobalt, as a marketing board with the aim to clean the artisanal mining supply chain and also uh, influence the price, the price setting, the benefit of the government, but also of uh, miners. But EGC is still onboarding now. So obviously there are very poor working conditions. Uh, These workers are working in informal conditions for very, very little money. The question I want to ask then, so you said that there's a state-run enterprise that works in this area. There are also a number of uh, larger private industrial mining companies. In moving these workers to the industrial companies, do those companies have better track records of, of performance in terms of environmental and worker conditions? Uh, yes, in general, companies, industrial companies, uh, have adopted uh, well-advanced uh, standards, international standards. And uh, this goes from EITI to uh, regarding payments uh, to uh, UN Global Compact and all the standards uh, that are of uh, reference. I think the issue in the DRC in, and in those weak institutional settings, it is uh, the implementation, the monitoring, uh, the enforcement of national rules and international standards. And this is where our resource governance index measure uh, the gap, the important gap uh, between rules and practices. And uh, clearly, uh, even though this gap is narrowing in many countries. It, DRC is lagging behind on this. And this is an area where civil society groups and other actors can support the government and support uh, uh, actors in the, and monitor 
in the fields, those operators, those companies, so that they uh, clearly enforce the rules they, they have adopted. But the, the issue or the plan is not really to convert um, artisanal miners into industrial production. It is to keep them at the level where uh, they operate because it is hard to convert 200,000 people <laughs> into industrial mining. I'd imagine industrial mining wouldn't require that many workers. So many people would be out of work. Is that right? Yes, because it is uh, technological intensive, not uh, human resources uh, intensive at the industrial level. Uh, so it is a matter of, um, it is a challenge to the DRC government to keep those people at work uh, because it is a job, that sector provides jobs to uh, Congolese citizens. Uh, the the uh, interest for the government is to keep those people at work, so not uh, directing them into uh, industrial operations. Well, David, as you point out in the recent report from the organization on mining in the DRC, about 60% of the households in these areas where the, the mining takes place are actually dependent on the mines for their livelihood. So obviously uh, it's in, you know, it's in the interest of the country and the workers to, to maintain as many of those jobs as possible. So switching to the demand side of this for just a moment, David, what are the risks that poorly governed mining and poorly governed resource, uh, resource activities in the DRC presents to technology companies, particularly the companies that are relying on these lithium-ion batteries that, that use cobalt, namely, in this case, EVs? So uh, there's a few risks. Like one, one is the, the image uh, of all this. Like Ave just painted a really strong picture of the human rights abuses, the, some of the environmental destruction around, around cobalt mining. And some of the, the tech companies, the EV companies, particularly in places like the, the US and Europe, are worried about their brand image over this. So, so that's, that's one image. That's one issue. And that led to, say, partly led to Elon Musk saying, we're going to do away with, with cobalt in our batteries. I think probably the bigger risk, though, is down to just getting the, the amount of metals and at a, a good enough price to feed that huge demand that I was talking about. Uh, because the world to, to transition quickly needs EVs to be as cheap as possible. They need to be cheaper than, than um, normal cars, uh, for starters. And poor governance, I think, has a huge role to play in this. So we need huge amounts of money coming into this to develop these mines. Uh, the last estimate was about $1.5 trillion over the next 15 years. That compares with about $600 billion in the last 15 years. So a really substantial amount. We're not seeing that at the moment. Partly that's just because mining is a risky business. It's hard to just find the metals. It, they have very long lead times. It takes about 16 years to go from discovery to, to actual production. And this matters a lot because we've only got 28 years left till the Paris Agreement targets of 2050. But a lot of what's coming here is it's what's slowing down the discovery and development and, and creating bigger risks for investors is various things around poor governance, whether that's um, strikes 
So analysts think about 5% of mining output generally in the world is lost through strikes each year. Um, so even though working conditions may be better in industrialized mines, that they cannot always be that good. Um, there can be general disasters because uh, safety standards aren't, aren't up to scratch. There's a load of miners at the moment trapped in a, a mine in Bocconi Faso. Tax disputes can be a, a major risk. Uh, so Zambia is, is kind of a great case study if you want to be looking at, at risks to mining from, from governance. Um, they, they got into a dispute with Vedanta over one of the major copper mines there. Um, and that led to uh, the seizure of, of the mine. The government's taken it off um, the hands of Vedanta. And that's still, even after three years, hasn't, hasn't been given back. And that's holding up investment. Vedanta says that they're going to invest another $2 billion to expand that mine, but they need that man back. So it's these sort of things are, are holding up the investments. And governance comes into this because all this relates to how the governments and companies and communities are, are dealing with each other. And usually it's a, down to a breakdown in trust. So in, in various ways, better governance, better rules, and particularly better implementation of these rules can fix these the issues, make sure there's less disputes, less disruptions, and then reduce these risks and get, and get investment going. Well, it sounds to me you're talking generally about what we'd term, I guess, geopolitical risk, right? Or one element of geopolitical risk, because you've got uh, potential for regime change, resource nationalization, different tax structures. I mean, the, the companies that are depending upon these resources are depending on countries where governance generally is maybe unstable. So a, a lot of this risk goes along with it. Is that right? Yeah, completely. And the, the reason we focus on cobalt is because as I've said, we sixty percent of sixty or seven percent of cobalt's all coming from the DRC, and that's kind of the same in some of the other metals. That as we expand the demand for these metals, they have to be found in countries that a lot of investors fear to trade. And so, yeah, there's huge geopolitical risk. But I, th I think what's really key here is that we need these metals for the energy transition. Um, we need that because otherwise the world is burning. We've got some serious problems. But these metals aren't ours. They aren't Europeans or, or Americans. They're the Congolese or Zambians or Indonesians. And they need a fair return on the extraction of these metals. They need jobs. They need contracts for their local businesses. They need to make sure their forests and rivers and, and farmlands aren't polluted by this. So that there needs to be this balance. And sometimes this can work and has worked, and both sides are getting a fair deal out of it. But where it breaks down, both sides are losing. And so really, I think a key message for, for good, what good governance means is that it has to be a balance. David, you said a few minutes ago, uh, you alluded to the fact that Elon Musk has said that he is going to try to engineer cobalt out of the batteries that are used in Tesla's cars. Is that a possibility? And what does that mean for the future opportunity that DRC would find in, in cobalt? Yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, Elon Musk says a lot of things, and that was a few years ago. But we, yeah, we have seen uh, new designs of batteries using much less cobalt. Uh, we've talked. We talk with industry analysts. Uh, they think because of the way 
EV designs are made and kind of the life cycle of each new car, these things won't affect demand for at least the next 10 years. Then after that, things are much less certain and we can't really predict it. But given the, both the high price of cobalt, all the risks that I was, I was detailing, there's yeah, a lot of incentive to, to try and use less cobalt. And there's, there's some batteries, the, the LFP batteries, that are using no cobalt at all. I guess in, in some ways that's a bigger risk to the DRC, that they could be losing a big demand uh, for, for cobalt. And by the way, so about half of all cobalt is used in, in batteries, right? So you, you get the, the EV industry moving away, and that's a real slump in cobalt demand. Well, what the opportunity is, is there's an opportunity now for the next 10 years to, to make the most of, of what's going on and improve governments quickly and, and, and get as much out of it. And investing those revenues in in areas of the economy that, if there is a slump in cobalt in, after ten years, then uh, the DRC can can keep going, the economy can keep going. Evie, let me ask you this question: We've been talking obviously about governance, and I, I think that one of the questions here that needs to be addressed is who governs. So, are we looking at governments such as the government in the DRC? to take this responsibility? Are we looking at foreign governance, governments uh, where a lot of these products end up in Europe, in the United States, to impose some type of regulation? Or are we looking for the companies, the mining companies or the EV or battery manufacturers to do this? Who does governance fall upon? And if governments themselves fail to, to, to you know, find a sustainable ESG path forward here, to what extent can companies at any level take over that role? Yes, that is a very good question. Uh, the shortest answer is uh, the DRC governs. Uh, the DRC govern government governs the DRC. But of course, it's not completely true, uh, especially when institutions are weak. The, the government is at the forefront of that uh, fight for better governance. But of course, all the actors, it is a multi-sectoral and, and multi-stakeholder issue, uh, the overall governance, because it is not the gov government uh, mining, uh, most of these, these cobalt. Uh, it is not uh, the government... Um, uh, designing uh, standards, uh, international standards especially, uh, it is not. So the government has a limited role, especially again in weak institutional uh, settings. So we, are, we have observed um, uh, important steps forward on uh, the overall governance at the global level with uh, important standards in, in the sector like uh, EITI, uh, which have been reviewed in 2016 and 2019. The latest review is really interesting uh, because it requires now uh, the publication of all contracts, uh, which was not the first, um, the first engagement commitment of countries, including in the DRC. So since 2021, the EITI standard requires all member countries to disclose contracts. This is a great, a great advance. And um, uh, there is also a, a, an aspect about who owns titles, mining li licenses, who owns 
project. This is about beneficial ownership. This was um, adopted in the EITI standard and is applied in uh, country members. Uh, even though it is at different various stages of integration in their legislative frameworks, uh, many of them have already are already disclosing in practice legal and beneficial ownership uh, in their annual reports. So you see it is a combination of international norms, national uh, governments, and I will also mention uh, this, a standard like uh, Global Reporting Initiative uh, that provide companies with indicators for the uh, ESG reporting. And uh, uh, they are being updated to incorporate new considerations relating to energy transition. For example, corruption in the supply chain and companies in Africa are increasingly uh, integrating or adopting those standards, including the UN Global Compact, which contains principles uh, to fight corruption, human rights abuses, child work. And as specifically in the DRC, we have observed uh, uh, a good, something interesting, a great move uh, from the government, which is uh, uh, that uh, political will to uh, domesticate the production of batteries, electrical batteries, uh, to serve the electric vehicle industry. This is something uh, DRC wants to build on in the coming years and the overall um, region. Uh, with uh, the participation of mining companies, they have already, many of them uh, are backing uh, that commitment. And on the governance side, specifically contract transparency uh, and uh, beneficial ownership, uh, payment disclose, uh, disclosures, social environmental payments, and ad hoc reports on specific challenges in the government, uh, governance like resource-backed loans, subnational revenues payments, we are seeing uh, an improvement, even though it is still slow in the context of DRC, uh, uh, of the EITI space uh, that has been revamped in recent years. And uh, you know, in the EITI multi-stakeholder group, participate the government, uh, the companies, mining companies, and civil society. So David, what options exist, for example, bringing production closer to home in some jurisdictions. I know that in the United States, there has been talk about engaging in cobalt mining in the western part of the country. Are the reserves adequate to the demand? Can this be done? And in a time frame that we would need to meet the demand for EVs? We certainly can't meet the full demand from certainly not just um, American lap mines. There are some mines found across Europe, but even that is, is not going to be enough. There's, there's two problems. One is a lot of the landmass in, in developed countries, like, like both in Europe and America, has been explored already. We've either extracted the stuff or we, we know the stuff's not there. The other major issue is we, we have very strong environmental standards. And so... Uh, and strong community groups that don't want mines near them. And so it can be really difficult to open up a new mine, at least in the UK, with both on oil fracking, gas fracking, and uh, some lithium mines and so on. Uh, we're a densely populated island. It can be really difficult to to get people to agree to say, can we open this mine? It's It's going to be hard to do it from closer to home. So it's another reason why we really need to 
companies need to look out outside and and yeah all across the world i want to jump back to a uh, an issue that we'd very briefly touched on earlier in this conversation, and that is China's role in mining of cobalt in the DRC. China is the largest owner by far of cobalt mines in the DRC. It is also, and this is also critical, by far the dominant player in the processing, not only of cobalt, but of many minerals and metals that are critical to the energy transition. So my question is as follows. Given that China is also very reliant upon these resources for its own development of its EV industry and related clean technologies, what supply risk and what transparency challenges might be presented again by China's dominant role? Well, I'm going to flip that around a bit. In some ways, this is good. Right, like China, China dominates these supply chains because it has really efficient companies and can do this at scale, and it's producing the batteries. It's, it's processing the cobalt, producing the batteries, and, and producing EVs. I think about forty percent of all EVs, and in a way that is low cost. And so that's that's good because we need low cost stuff for the energy transition. But a lot of the the EU, uh, the US, there's there's these big economic groups are kind of seeing this as a new scramble that this industrial this energy transition is a new industrial revolution, and they all want a piece of it, um, and because it's around energy, it's about important things of making sure there's enough transport infrastructure, enough energy, it's a real kind of strategic critical issue. So in that another way. Each of these groups is trying to vie for control. So that's that's going on on the broad political level, broad geopolitical level. Then there's kind of issues around there'll be not only Chinese companies, but lots of lots of companies are aversely integrating across the whole uh, value chain. So they may own some shares in, in the mine and DRC, they'll own the processor, and they might own uh, parts of the 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 battery precursor plant or cathode manufacturing and this means a lot of a lot of the trades that would be going on between unrelated parties is all being done behind uh behind screens behind this wall where we can't really see what's going on and this is problematic for a few reasons one we don't really know what the prices of this stuff really is it's very difficult to actually find the true price of cobalt. You you can kind of look online and it'll give you something from the London Metal Exchange. Um, but the actual prices that are going on across these value chains is, is much less uh, transparent. Um, and this is difficult because uh, the DRC, the tax authority in the DRC, for example, needs the, the right price to know the right price so they can verify the profits and the revenues that these companies are making so they can they can tax them properly. So yeah, it's it's issues like that 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 are creating a lot of problems. Um, on top of that, just this scramble for these resources kind of I think exasperates the problem that Hervé was talking about around corruption, that there's much greater incentives and much greater pressure to be getting slices of this pie and that i can see is just gonna 
put fuel on this on this fire and uh with more corruption really can mess up things it can uh make the risk for more legitimate businesses much more difficult acquiring licenses for mines acquiring uh trading permits uh much more difficult and and for the energy transition itself this can i think can can slow things down and be uh, be more difficult Irvi, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of insight. Are there any initiatives at the global level that are really working to try to improve governance and performance of extractive industries that we've been talking about? Uh, yeah, uh, we are observing at the international level uh, an important mobilization at the OECD level or in the US and in the EU. Um, Energy itself is uh, co-leading along with uh, the OECD and EITI, a working group explicitly on anti-corruption uh, in critical mineral supply chain. And the, the recommendations uh, coming out of this work should feed into evolving mining-focused ESG uh, standards. And the review, the review of the EITI standard in 2024 will also be an opportunity uh, to uh, extend uh, some requirements on energy transition, uh, on resource-backed loans, on contract transparency. And uh, so there are a lot going on, specifically at the EU level. Uh, US and EU are enhancing transparency and reporting requirements about the supply chain. Uh, the EU and UK uh, ha- have developed duty of care legislations uh, that compel European and U- uh, UK companies, subsidiaries, and their suppliers to observe uh, ESG principles. And the number of litigations is expected to dramatically increase in coming years. Uh, uh, the EU's latest uh, review was in February 2022, so you see it is uh, really going on now. This will help um, support, this will support civil society. Uh, campaign at the global level and at the national level uh, so that subsidiaries that work in the supply chain or uh, local uh, subsidiaries of international companies and uh, their suppliers as well can be uh, accountable of uh, their um, their practices on on the ground. I think this will be really interesting to follow up. David, a final question for you here. We've talked about a lot of the challenges around raw materials governance today. Are there any models of good governance in particular that you'd like to highlight that could be models going forward before we finish up our conversation today? Yeah, it's, it depends on which policies you're talking about. And and when we're talking about policies, it's like if, if your listeners want to know look for the Natural Resource Charter and look for all the stuff on our website because that gives loads more details. But um, Chile is is often seen as as a great leader in a lot of mining policy. They've invested there, they've, they've taxed companies well, um, and they've invested the money well. Particularly that that's particularly important because it's it's no good uh, taxing companies and taking money away from them if you're then going to to lose it. Um, and Chile has has generally been able to manage the macroeconomic risks of of the boom and bust of of these these revenues, and has started to diversify in various ways, diversify their economy. So that's a key one to look out for. Um, Indonesia is starting to develop uh, value chains. Um, 
it's still in early days, uh, but it, it started it started actually quite dangerously by uh, banning the export of, of raw metals. And the press and lots of analysts said, oh, this was an awful idea. It, it was a slow start, but now we have some major battery manufacturers coming in saying, uh, we're going to invest. And even Tesla and so on have been suggesting they're going to be opening up EV factories there too. Um, I guess for the one last one would be um, support for local supply companies, the, because not only this is this would be developing jobs, um, but it can also I think reduce costs for the industry itself and so accelerate the transition. And there are some good companies, good countries that are doing this. South Africa's got a got a great supply base. Chile again, and then obviously places like Australia and Canada are, are very strong on this. So, yeah, I think lots of good examples to, to look for and emulate. David and Hervé, thank you very much for talking. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. It was a pleasure. Today's guests have been David Manley and Hervé Lado of the Natural Resource Governance Institute. If you like this podcast and aren't yet subscribed to Energy Policy Now on your favorite podcast app, please sign up to make sure you get every episode delivered to you. Energy Policy Now is published bi-weekly on Tuesdays, and you can check out our archive of over 130 episodes by visiting the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.